Well, good morning. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, if you would. We're continuing our study in the book of Ephesians. The topic today is living wisely in a foolish world. I'm always interested in how the Lord uh, brings things together on the morning, and I'm not real sure how heckling a group of men loaded with shotguns fits with living wisely in a foolish world, but um, we'll wait to hear the result of that. Ephesians chapter 5, we're just going to read verses 15 and 16 to get us started. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. In fact, let's add verse 17. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's pray. Father, we come and we live in a world that's foolish. And we need wisdom. And so we pray as we look at this passage and the, the passages that follow that talk about how to live uh, wisely in our homes and in our places of employment, that uh, you would teach us, that you would show us areas where we can uh, change our lives uh, to be wise. And so we pray as we look at this today that you would speak to our hearts because we ask it in Jesus' name. Sin has brought confusion, havoc, and destruction to our world. And so there's two words in those, these verses we read. One is uh, unwise. It means without wisdom. The word foolish has the idea of unthinking, drifting along. And those two words pretty much describe um, the effect of sin on our world. I once heard a person describe uh, the effect of sin in a person's life is like watching a train crash in slow motion. And God does not want that uh, for his children. So before we hop in this passage, let's do, I put down here a brief review, but it might not be as brief as I originally thought. Paul's writing to a particular group of people. You'll notice in Ephesians one, one, that he says, uh, Paul the Apostle of Christ, Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. He describes these saints or holy one in various verses that follow as those who have been redeemed, uh, those who have been forgiven. He talks in Ephesians five, uh, 2, verses 5 and 8, that he says they are saved, rescued uh, from a danger. Uh, and that danger is the wrath of God against their sins because once they were dead in their trespasses and sins, but now they've been made alive uh, together with Jesus Christ. So how does a person get saved? And I thought it would be good to just look at that briefly. Um, you know, in a lot of places in our world today, from a lot of pulpits, you would hear some different points of view on how to be fit for heaven, how to make it to heaven. Some would say, well, you just need more knowledge. 
There's some things you need to learn. There's some things uh, you need to know. But when Nicodemus came to the Lord Jesus, this man who probably had Genesis through Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy memorized, Jesus didn't talk to him about knowledge. He talked to him about being born again. He said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's radically different than just adding some knowledge uh, to uh, your, your thinking processes. Some people would say, well, do good works. But look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where it says, um, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Works don't save. And some people say, well, make more effort to be a good person. But the Bible, Paul says in, in Romans 7, 18, in my flesh dwells no good thing. And the problem with, with this whole side here is that the source is self. And Paul says, in my flesh dwells no good thing. And in there, in Ephesians uh, 2, 8 and 9, in Ephesians 2, 8, it says, for by grace you have been saved uh, through faith, that not of yourselves. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We cannot do that which will make us right with God. We need a savior, someone to, other than ourselves to rescue us. And the Bible tells us that, that savior, that source of salvation is the Lord Jesus. So Peter in, in Acts chapter 4 says, there is no other name given among men, under heaven given among men, whereby you must be saved. If you're going to be saved, it is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And what a difference it makes. Instead of more effort by me, it's Christ's death. We heard in, in the breaking of bread, someone referred to Romans 5. For when we were without strength, when we were helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The world wants to, to uh, spell salvation, D-O-I-N-G. Doing more. God describes salvation as D-O-N-E. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. God's salvation is a done salvation. Instead of me doing good works, I take it as God's gift. So again, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, the onus, the obligation, the responsibility for my salvation is not on me, it's on God. And he's satisfied with the death of his son. And instead of more knowledge, the Bible says, I'm born again. See, that which is flesh is flesh, the Lord Jesus told Nicodemus. And flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. Earlier in John chapter 1, John said, The Lord Jesus came to his own people, and his own people didn't receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name, who are born, not of blood. You don't have to be Jewish, part of the Jewish nation. It, it doesn't matter 
whether your parents are saved or not. It's not by blood, nor the will of the flesh. It's not some of these good works or... These good works or effort that you do. It's not of the will of the man. A preacher can't save you. A church can't save you. But of God. And God does that for those who come to his son. And he says we're born again. And in 2 Timothy, Paul writes, salvation has this seal. God knows those that are his. See, it's not about me getting more knowledge. It's the fact that God knows me. There will be some people who come to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, we did all this stuff for you. And the Lord Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. And in a group this size, there could be someone sincerely, heartfeltly, trying to do it on this side. And all those efforts are vain. And so Paul talks to these people who, by the work of Jesus Christ, have been forgiven. By the work of Jesus Christ, have been bought out of the slave market of sin and been redeemed. By the work of Jesus Christ, have been made alive when they were dead in their trespasses and sins. They've been rescued. And if you're here this morning and, and you find yourself here, you can be saved today. Sitting in your seat. It is recognizing that you, you cannot be saved through your efforts. It is through the Lord Jesus. And as many as receive him, John says, become the children of God. And the Bible says all who call, and that word is to call for help. All who call for help on the name of the Lord will be saved. And sitting there in your seat, you can call out to the Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, I cannot save myself. I believe your word that you're the Savior. Save me. If you have questions, please feel free to talk to some of us. I have a couple books called God's Answers to Man's Questions by, ben, by the name of Bill McDonald, who preached for uh, probably close to 50 years. And he just wrote down all the questions that people came to him with about salvation. And if you're struggling with it, that book was very helpful to me in my spiritual journey. And understanding salvation. So he's writing to a group of people. These people who are saved. And then he says in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. These people have received God's blessings. And Paul gives a number of blessings in this chapter. But the point I want to make out of this. Uh, in our review, is at the moment of salvation, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've come to him and received him as, as your Savior, you have as many spiritual blessings as every other believer. They may understand what blessings they have more than you do. They may understand more about redemption, more about propitiation, reconciliation. They may understand what these terms mean. They may understand more than you do, but they don't have more than you do. And so Paul prays at the end of chapter 1 that we would understand the blessings we have. Understand the fullness of the blessings we have. Or, 
uh, they may possess or live in light of the truth of their blessings more than you do. Um, when we were going through Hebrews, we, we talked in Hebrews chapter 10 about some people who have an evil conscience. An evil conscience is there's some sin in their past that they just can't believe has been totally forgiven. And, and so they constantly find themselves, that conscience stirring up guilt. And they're coming into the presence of God and asking to be forgiven. And they have been forgiven. They just haven't taken hold of it and, and lay hold of it. Dan Smith from Emmaus used to say, stop reminding God of things he said he remembers no more. And, and so some people don't live in the fullness of their blessings. They don't grasp them. And so Paul prays at the end of chapter 3 that we would grasp these blessings and we would actually live in light of our blessings. But nobody has more blessings than someone else. It's just understanding them and grasping them if you've come to Christ. And then, beginning in chapter 4, we, we start looking at four walks. I want to just briefly review those. Ephesians 4.1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And we talked about this being the group walk. Um, the word church is a word that means a called out company. In salvation, God's calling to the world. You have sinned against me. You've broken my law. You're going to face my judgment. But I sent my son to die for your sins and he will save you. Come to my son. And all those that hear that call and respond and come to the Lord Jesus are part of this church, this called out company. And so the first thing he says is walk in a manner worthy of this calling with which you've been called to be part of the people of God, to be part of the inheritance of Christ, the, the church, the body of Christ. And so he talks about how you can do that. And so Dave Wilson talked about that we, the first area is we are to work to preserve and promote uh, and protect the unity that the Spirit makes amongst the body of Christ. And then we looked at spiritual gifts, those, those special abilities that God gives to every believer to minister to other believers and, and to share the gospel. And then uh, Dave LaMarche took us through how all of us come together in a community and like a, a family, we care for one another. We, we, there's uh, 54 different one another commands. And so we minister to one another. We care for one another. We're there for one another. And this is that group walk, walking worthy. And then down in verse 17 of chapter 4, he says, So then I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. The Gentiles, in, in the previous chapters, he's used as an example of the unbelievers. The people before they were saved, which includes all of the world. There was a way that we walked dead in our trespasses and sins according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, living in the lust of our flesh. And he says, I want you to, 
to put that aside. He talks about putting off the old self, the old way of living. Having been renewed in our minds, understanding now we're saved, we're different, and put on the new self, this new life that we've received from Jesus Christ when we were made alive. And then he gives five examples at the end of chapter 4 where you don't steal any longer, but you work hard so you can be like God and be generous and share. You don't lie anymore, but you're like the God of truth. You speak the truth in love. And so he talks about these changes of life. And at the beginning of chapter 5, he talks about walking in love. The changed heart walk. The, the walk that identifies us with Christ. Where it's not just surface level living this life, but it flows out of a love for Jesus Christ that causes me to love my brothers and sisters. It's a sacrificial love. It's a sacrifice. It's voluntary, a voluntary uh, kind of a sacrifice. It's a real inner transformation, not just a surface level change. It's done out of devotion, not out of a sense of duty. And then last week, Tony took us through the next one, which is found in chapter 5, verse 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Once we didn't just walk in the darkness, we were darkness. We were adding to the darkness on planet Earth by our sinful life. But we've been changed. We've been made light in the Lord. And as Tony pointed out, now we should walk in a way that shines out that light wherever we go, that even exposes the darkness around us, even as Christ exposed the darkness in his day. And I was thinking, as, as we reviewed these, since we're, we're coming up on the last one uh, that we read, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise... And this is the last one in verses 15 to 21 that we're going to look at this morning. He gives the opening four principles of how to walk wisely. But then he's going to apply how to walk wisely as a husband. How to walk wisely as a wife, as a parent, as a child, as an employer, as an employee. Uh, that we'll look at over the next couple of weeks. But I thought as we come to the end of this walk section... It would be a good time to have a quiz. You've seen those quizzes where you read in a magazine it says, on a scale of 1 to 10, which are you? Well, I invite you to take a little quiz this morning. On a scale of 1 to 10, the group walk, are you closer to being a mere spectator? Or are you a participant in the body life? We talk about this being a participant church where people rally around. And so we, we heard uh, various ones talk about cards, prayers, th those kind of things. Um, we don't do it because that's what we want to be. It's what the Lord said. <laughs> We're to be a participant church. Are you closer to being just a spectator? 
And as you get to know people, as you get involved in people's lives, as you hear about needs, there's more opportunity to be more participant. But where are you on that scale? How about walking not as the Gentiles walk, the changed life walk? Is your life more resembled the world around you, the unsaved around you? Or does it more mirror the image of Jesus Christ, this new self? And, you know, as you do some growing, all of a sudden sin shows itself in a new form and you have to deal with that. But are you moving closer to Christ-likeness? Where are you on that scale in your walk? How about the walk of love? Maybe on the surface you, you appear a very fine Christian. But where in your heart? Is it done out of devotion to Jesus Christ because you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it done because, well, that's what Christians do and I want to be viewed as a Christian? Where is it duty or are you moving towards devotion? Where are you on that scale? And then as a walking as a child, children of light, do you walk in the shadows Tomorrow through Saturday, will there be much light? Or do you walk in the shadows? Or do you walk in the light and shine the light? And again, these are growing things. But it's good to stop and ask. You know, we don't want to just go through these five walks and say, well, here are the five walks. And never have a stop and say, hey, where am I? in these walks. So let's look at walking wisely. Four principles, four key areas to help us walk wisely. Verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Verse 17, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. King James Version says, walk circumspectly, walk carefully. Paul chooses an interesting word which has the idea of exactness, accuracy, diligence, and carefulness. Years ago, I was at the garden tomb, which is a tomb that probably resembles very closely to what uh, the tomb that the Lord Jesus was buried in looked like. And they have a wall around the garden tomb, And on top of that wall, they put mortar, and they've stuck broken bottles in that mortar. And I asked one of the guys, I said, why do you have that? And he said, because people would try to climb in here and destroy stuff, and that is a deterrent. One of the places where this Greek word for walk carefully is used in in one of the ancient Greek writings is it describes a cat walking along that kind of wall, carefully placing its foot, missing the glass as it walks along the wall. Years ago, there was a book called Point Man. It was written by a guy who was special forces who had been in Vietnam, and his job was to be the point man for the patrol. His job was to see if there were ambushes ahead. His job was to check for booby traps so that the patrol could walk through uh, their patrol safely. And he compared that to being a father. 
that out there, there are lots of snares. There's lots of booby traps. There's an enemy seeking to ambush the family. And as father, he viewed his role as being similar as that point man in Vietnam. Looking for those things. Making sure that it's a safe walk for his family. Both of those pictures catch what, what Paul's saying here. We need to walk carefully. We need to avoid the snares and dangers that Satan wants to put in our path. In verse 17, he, he adds to that, saying not foolishly, not unthinkingly, not just drifting like the world is, carried along by every current that, that comes along, but rather um, wisely understanding what the will of the Lord is. As part of our spiritual blessings, God's made known to us the mystery of his will, chapter 1, 9 and 10. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. See, the unwise have no insight into God's will and plans. And so the result is, they view something as very, very important and in light of eternity has no value at all. In fact, it may have a negative value, but the world pursues it because they do not have God's insight. And God says, I don't want you to live that way. Years ago, there was a man in this meeting and he, he was a big gun uh, for a company he had a whole wall of, of, of citations from this company. Uh, and he called me up. He had been retired for a number of years. He was, he was elderly. I think he was taking 26 pills at the time because he was often in the hospitals. They had to adjust the medicine. He called me up and he said, I want you to come by. And I said, well, what's up? He said, I'm close to death. I said, yeah, everybody knows that. He said, when I enter the presence of Jesus Christ, I'm going to have a handful of ashes. Because I, I went for everything the world said to go after. He said, I want you to pray for me that he will give me at least one year. I want to read the Bible all the way through so I can at least say I've read the whole word of God once. And he, he had married a, a woman that uh, was a widow, had, had several kids. He did not have a good relationship with those kids. He said, I want to write each one of those kids, apologize for past difficulties. I never shared the gospel with those kids. And I want to have an opportunity to write each one of them. Be reconciled if I can. In God's mercy, he gave him two or three but I always remember that. I'm going to walk into the presence of Jesus Christ and everything I have is going to be ashes. God says, I want you to understand my will. I want you to be wise. I want you to avoid the snares and traps and attacks of the enemy. I want you to know where to invest your life. 
The world in which we live offers us lots of choices. God says, I want to give you the insight to choose wisely. Be in the word. Understand what the will of God is. He's giving you the spirit to help you understand it. He's giving you his word. He's promised to give you insight. The second principle found in verse 16. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. Some uh, put this redeeming the time. Some put it buying up every opportunity. The idea is to buy the opportunities for service and witness. The parallel verse in Colossians, which is very much parallel to Ephesians, says, conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. One of Satan's great lies is that we always have tomorrow, and we don't. The opportunities you had last week may not show up this week. You have the opportunities of today. You're not absolutely promised tomorrow the Lord could come. You could die. We need to take advantage of them. When I was a teenager, we went to Cronus Bible Camp. A number of you go to Cronus Bible Camp. There was a young guy by the name of Lee Swanson. He came from northwest Iowa. And Lee Swanson came to camp, and uh, he was troubled. And uh, so we said, what's wrong, Lee? He said, my best friend died, killed in a farming accident. I had never shared the gospel with him. And he was so moved by that, he, he said, we, what, we were 16, 17, something like that. He said, you know, there's a town outside of camp, Painesville, which always had sidewalk sales every time our camp was there, unless they had it every time there was a camp there. He said, I don't know if anybody's told them the gospel. He said, I'm going to take my free time and go into Painesville and go door to door and just give them tracts. And so most of us went all week long during our free time. We, we went into Painesville, just knocked on doors saying, hey, we know we're going to heaven. This track can tell you how to get there. And we just want to leave it with you. But Lee had a sense of he didn't buy up an opportunity. And now it was forever gone. And so he says, part of this wisdom is Asking God, show me the opportunities that are here this week. Those of you that um, were here when we had the missionary to Poland, uh, and, and he talked about a lady opening her car door into his car and, and walking off, and he called her back to make sure there wasn't any damage. And, and he recognized that that is an opportunity to share the gospel. Or the one I really loved was he had a repairman come to fix some appliance in his house. And it wasn't fixed. And he called him back again. And it wasn't fixed. And he called, a guy came back seven times. And he said, it wasn't until the seventh time that God got a hold of my thoughts and said, listen, I keep giving you an opportunity to talk to this guy about the gospel. Please do it. <laughs> Seeing the opportunities. Buying them up. Because 
There's only so many opportunities that each one of us have. The third principle of the wise walk is found at the end of verse 17 or 16. Because the days are evil. Recognize that evil's at work pulling men farther from God. We saw that back in chapter 4 where he talked, don't walk as the Gentiles walk. There's a callousness, there's a hardness to sin. We know from the Lord's parable of the, of the four soils that when the gospel message goes out, Satan's right there to snatch up the seed. Evil's at work. And someone who's interested today, the next time you talk to him may not be interested. When I was at Grace Seminary in 1990, uh, the Iron Curtain came down. Missionaries could go into Romania, Czechoslovakia, Poland, some of these, these countries that had been, uh, they hadn't been able to get missionaries into. And all of a sudden at Grace, they began to say, listen, even if you're in your third year, finish what you can. And if you're interested in missions, we want you to go. We don't want you to stay here and finish. We want you to go. And I said to, to my advisor, I said, why are they pushing all these people to go? He said, because when Spain opened to the gospel, when Franco died and, and the evangelicals could come into Spain, we said, well, we've we got to prepare. We've got to prepare. And so take your time and prepare and what we found out was we had five years. After five years, the cults had come in to confuse the thing. Materialism had come in. And that interest in the gospel, where they wanted to hear the message of the gospel, was, became indifference. They were caught up in materialism. They were caught up in the cults. And we missed our opportunity. And so they said, we'd rather send out people not completely prepared, but get the message there. And so these opportunities are not always available. And there's a force working against us. Satan's active. He blinds the eyes of the lost. The fourth principle. We quickly realize we need help to live this way to see the opportunities, to take advantage of them. And God's provided it through the indwelling spirit. And so in verses 18 to 21, he says, you need to recognize the need for and the provision of the filling of the spirit. So he says, and do not get drunk with wine for that's dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. The natural Christian life is to be filled with the spirit. When you got saved, you were filled with the spirit. It means you're under the control of the Spirit. He uses the negative example of don't be drunk with wine. If you keep drinking wine and drinking wine and drinking wine, pretty soon you're drunk. And you live a life of recklessness. You know, they'll say uh, drunkenness is being wasted. And you end up with a wasted life. It's actually the word salvation with the letter A in front of it. It's not the life of salvation. It's the exact opposite. It's debauchery. It's recklessness. It's wastefulness. It's excess. But the, the, the principle's there. What you give yourself to, what you constantly take in, fills you. So 
Be filled with the Spirit. And it's a command. So how does a person uh, be under the Spirit's control? Well, the first thing is confess and deal with all known sin. Sin grieves the Spirit of God. When you were first saved, you were filled with the Spirit of God. You stopped being filled when you grieve the Spirit of God. Grieving means he can't do what he really wants to do in your life because now he's got this sin that he needs to help you get out of your life. So you deal with sin. Secondly, you need to be in the Word of God. The parallel passage in Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of God dwell in us richly. And the idea of dwell has the idea of to live comfortably in. We need to read and study the Word of God and obey it so that the Word of God is comfortably living in our lives. And that's what the Spirit of God uses to guide us, to direct us. And then lastly, be obedient to the Spirit's control through the Word. So as the Spirit convicts me of sin, I deal with sin. As the Spirit of God shows me an opportunity, I move to take that opportunity. And as you're, you'll find a word where it used to Barnabas and others, that they, Stephen, they were full of the Spirit. It means consistently they lived being filled by the Spirit, under the Spirit's control. And just like drunkenness has a result of debauchery, of dissipation, of wasted, living by the Spirit, under the Spirit's control, has a, a result. And so he talks about it. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. There's a confident joy that's shown by singing. You know, songs, I have a couple books on my shelf that give the history to different Christian hymns. And these people went through experiences where they realized God was true. God loved them. God was there to help them. God encouraged them. And they wrote these songs. And as we sing those songs, we are acknowledging that we too have felt that. That we too recognize that. And there's this confidence in, in God's working in our lives that brings joy. There was once a king who asked one of his advisors, how do we know... Christians have the real truth. And the guy said to him, because Christians sing. Secondly, there in verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. There's a grateful, thankful heart for all things. I'm going to speak this afternoon at Friendship Village a couple, at a couple chapels on Psalm 121. Uh, God, six times it's referred to, he protects us, he keeps us. One of the verses says, he keeps us from all evil. Warren Wiersbe says on that, some of our experiences in life hurt us, but they never harm us because we're protected by the care of God. So Joseph could say to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20, you meant your 
what happened to me for evil, but God meant it for good. And so we have this confidence, and we can give thanks for all things. You know the story of Corey Tenboom, who, with her sister, because they were helping Jews escape, were thrown into a prison of war camp, and a large part of her family died there. And they were put in this barracks, crowded with women. And, and she was complaining all the time, and her sister said to her, you need to start giving thanks for all of these things. And, and Corey said, well, I can give thanks for everything except the fleas. And then she heard two guards talking about the, uh, this woman who was in charge of the barracks, wanted them to come in. And they said, we don't go in there because there's too many fleas. And she realized their freedom to have Bible studies and to share the gospel was because the guards were afraid of the fleas. And she went to her sister and said, today I can give thanks for the fleas. We can give thanks in all things for all things. And then lastly... He says, be subject to one another in the fear of God. It's a submission, a putting ourselves under authority, and it's Christ's authority, so that we value one another. We have a willingness to regard one another as more important than yourself out of a desire to please Christ. And so we'll find the husband in his role is going to submit to Christ and love his wife even to the place of death. And we'll, we'll see the wife respecting her husband as she submits to Christ and right on down through the various relationships. There's this mutual submission. Our world drifts along, pulled by various currents, unthinking about the most important essentials of life. And God doesn't want that for us. Well, I want to end, sorry, it's over a little bit. If you have a real tough problem that seems totally unsolvable, they call it a Gordian knot. And the Gordian knot comes from a story in about 300 BC. The king of Phrygia died, had no heir, and a prophecy arose that someone was going to come in an ox cart and he'd be the next king of Phrygia. And Gordius, the peasant, and his wife came to town in an ox cart and everybody said, there he is. And they made him king. And so he tied the ox cart to the temple of Zeus with a very elaborate knot. Some call it the Mount Everest of all knots. And uh, to, sh to show his, his uh, thankfulness to Zeus for making him king. Another prophecy arose that whoever could untie that knot would be king of all Asia Minor, all of Turkey. Years went by. Nobody could untie it. Lots of people tried. Persia, that owned Turkey, from, actually from Egypt all the way to the border of India, um, kept attacking Greece. Twice they attacked Greece. Philip of Macedon decided we need to not be city-states, but be a nation. He, he brought all the city-states under his control. His son Alexander said, rather than wait for the Persians to attack us, let's attack them. So he's in Asia Minor, and he hears about this knot. And anybody, he's fighting the Persians, and he says, hey, if I can untie this knot, that's going to demoralize them and really get my troops fired up. So he goes, and he sees this knot. And he, he works at it a little bit, and Legend says, 
He finally just looked at it, stepped back, pulled out a sword, and whacked it in two. And it was solved. Persians were demoralized. His, teams, his team was fired up. They conquered the whole Persian Empire. Sometime, every person here is going to run into a problem. In this confused, chaotic, sin-filled world. And you're going to start to try to unravel it, figure it out, and it's impossible. What's the answer? You take the sword of the Spirit and decisive obedience to the Word of God, led by the Spirit, you cut that puppy in two. And that's what God says. You can live wisely. There's no Gordian knot out there that simple obedience to this book can't bring answers to. He wants us to live wisely. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you care about us. You care that we don't get ensnared. You care that we don't miss opportunities. You care that someday in the presence of Christ, there'll be ways to honor him. There'll be glory given to him because by your spirit, by that which you supply, we acted wisely and brought glory to him. Help us as we go out into a, a world that wants to squeeze us into its mold, into its own foolish, drifting, unthinking patterns. Help us to hear your voice, submit to your spirit, and walk wisely. Because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.